This is episode 97 of the Rising Man podcast with Amer Ahmed. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What's happening, all you risers out there, all you wild and crazy kids? You feeling up? Feeling down? Feeling froggy? <laughs> I'm your host, Jetty Azuma. And if you're hearing my voice for the first time, welcome. Welcome to the Rising Man Movement, a band of brothers committed to initiating this generation of men and developing them into more effective leaders of men. We're in this together, y'all, sharpening each other's edges, raising the standard for the measure of a man to the level that our families and our futures deserve. And we can't do it alone. That's why we gotta band together. We gotta have each other's backs on this mission. Having a men's circle for the past 10 years has allowed me to navigate being a father, being a husband, starting a business, figuring out how to live my life on purpose and in a way that is fulfilling to me. I wouldn't have been able to do it without my men's team, straight up. And every man gets to have a circle of brothers supporting him, holding him accountable, calling him on his bullshit. No matter where you live in the world, there's no excuse anymore not to have a circle of men because we've got the Rising Man Fire Circle. And right now, it's only $33 a month to have a team of men, to have real hands-on leadership opportunities and experience, monthly trainings with me, special guest facilitators and presenters every single month. It's a no-brainer if you're looking to raise your game. Virtual community. All you need is Wi-Fi. If you've got Wi-Fi, you can be a part of a fire circle, of a men's circle today. So go to patreon.com slash rising man. Sign up right now. Join us. The prices are going up the end of November. So you can lock it in right now. You can get that 33 bucks a month rate and lock it in for life. So go do it. Make sure you do that before you only got like a week left. So make it happen. All right, my guest for today is Dr. Amer Ahmed. Amer is an organizational strategist who helps institutions and leaders address diversity and inclusion, equity, race, and intercultural development through consulting, coaching, group facilitation, and keynote speeches. With a grounded approach in social justice and commitment to community, Dr. Ahmed has worked with large organizations, higher education institutions, nonprofit organizations, schools, and community groups to create social reform. His background as the son of Indian Muslim Muslim immigrants and an intercultural diversity consultant have allowed him to serve in this capacity. He is the founder and CEO of AFA Diversity Consulting and the director of intercultural teaching and faculty development at UMass Amherst. He's a G, straight up. <laughs> in this episode, we discussed Amer's impressions of manhood and masculinity coming from an Islamic Eastern Asian background and what he observed in Western American culture growing up. We talked about how social justice affects men in the world today and how social justice is something a man of service must have his attention on every single one of us we discussed our thoughts about manhood and how it begins once a man declares it to be so for himself with the community reflecting it back to him also the role of community when it comes to a man and his purpose Amer shared his observations of a colonized reality where there tends to be an overemphasis on the individual defining this journey versus the indigenous model of communal experiences we dove into the construct of whiteness and its role in american male culture as well as discussing patriarchy and the misrepresentations of power asking ourselves the question, are all men responsible for patriarchy and the crimes of a few? This and more, without further ado, Dr. Amir Ahmed. All right, Rising Man family, I got another amazing man joining me here on the podcast today, coming live from Western Massachusetts, my man, Dr. Amer Ahmed. It's good to have you on here, brother. Thank you for having me, brother. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's a, I'm, I've been complaining about the cold out here in Santa Barbara. I mean, it's it's in the balmy 50s in the mornings out here. I'm sure you guys are dealing with a little worse than that out there. <laughs> yeah, that's the high here. I've been getting in the 20s at night here, actually, y'all. Kind of crazy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, I, I definitely don't miss the East Coast winter. That's for sure. <laughs> Listen, man, I'm glad to have you on here today. You know, before we even hit record on this one, already started to bring up these conversations that with your background in social justice and as an activist. It it reminds me of something I don't talk about here. I haven't talked about much here on the podcast. Was studying social justice in college and having the ability, the opportunity to travel around the world and study some different experiences of social justice issues and. With everything that you bring to the table, man, I'm looking forward to hear what you have to say about our current situation and how it affects us as as men. 
and the, within this topic of masculinity, especially for folks of color. Yeah. And what you just said about yourself is true about me. You know, I had my own journey growing up here in the United States, but then I studied abroad in, in college and partially, oh, I'm, the main amount of time was in South Africa and really shaped me mm-hmm. in terms of thinking about these issues and definitely as a, is a huge reason why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's really, it's easy to get stuck in, in the little bubbles we live in, uh, mm-hmm. just just in our own backyard. But I know for me, seeing the world and getting a glimpse into the f- even just the fact that people are living life in a very different way in different parts of the world right now, right mm-hmm. as we speak. And Every moment. So, and so many of us are oblivious to it. I know for me, when I was volunteering down in South Central LA for a little bit a few years back, some of those kids never left their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They, they had, they lived, they lived maybe two miles from the ocean, and they never been there their whole lives. So yeah, man. Crazy. I mean, that's part of why I got into hip hop activist work was because, in many ways, understanding that hip hop was a global phenomenon and it was a way to connect young people who might not have left a four block radius, you know, Mm -hmm. to get to learn about people and places and and learn about what's similar and what's different between them and and their struggles and other people's struggles, you know? Yeah, man, for sure. I I could already tell this conversation starting to heat up. Before we lift (laughs) off, let me ask you this first question. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, for you, what is the difference between a boy and a man? Ooh, man, that's a deep question. It's definitely not 18 years old. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that ain't it no 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 that's it's not like snap one day and you know coming from you know a south asian cultural background that age actually doesn't mean anything to us uh, you always your parents child mm-hmm. um no matter what you always show them respect you're never on your own the community never treats you in that way and so yeah i think it is more about a growth and maturity of spirit you know many cultures and traditions have rites of passage that determine that and it's only done in many traditions when a, a person demonstrates that they are prepared and that they're ready, that they've done the spiritual preparation. And what I've learned from many indigenous communities, you know, you don't have to be that old to become an elder. So I think a lot of times we have these lines, you know, and again, part of the implications of colonialism that's happened is that we've internalize these very specific definitions of that you're either this or that and it's like these binaries in looking at reality and the reality is that there's processes there's transitions there's journeys i think that's an evolution i think different cultures have different markers of what they view that to be as a person from an islamic background certainly you know an element of it is uh, especially when you're born into the tradition you know you know your journey through reading the holy scripture and your completion of it and then again we're of so many cultures that that spiritual tradition that that can also vary around what that means in relationship to other cultural rites of passage yeah. that occur and that's fascinating i'm appreciating the perspective you're bringing on to this question it's something that a lot of guys have spoke about already. But for me, it makes me realize that a lot of what I believe manhood to be nowadays is when an individual, mm-hmm. a male, if, if mm-hmm. they identify as, as male and as a man, even, even just that, right? It's gotten so complicated these days, mm-hmm. but claims or declares himself to be a man. And that for me, it's not just the man or the individual declaring it for himself, but the community reflecting back that, yes, indeed, you have demonstrated these qualities, these characteristics, these merits that exactly. bring you across that threshold into yeah, manhood. Yeah, it's earned. It's earned. Yeah, absolutely. You have to earn that, right? Yeah. And then continue to earn it because it's, it's, not, it's not, I think the masculine mindset is, is achievement-based. We're very uh, used to or familiar with checking off boxes. So it's like, oh, did that, became a man. Mm-hmm. Now I can just now I can just go about doing whatever I want. It's like, no, the, the journey for manhood really begins mm-hmm. when we declare that you step into it. And then it's a whole a whole half of a lifetime mm-hmm. journey to fulfill that on that on that purpose. Absolutely, man. I mean, again, like, you know, these these hard lines and demarcations and you're either this or that. And on and this side, you're this and on that side, you're that. That doesn't really work in most philosophies and orientations about reality for most cultures and people throughout human history. And so to whatever degree we buy into that and we use these kind of artificial binaries like age and our demarcations as like age, there's a whole different, there can be a whole different type of depth of wisdom to someone who's 18 years old depending on their journey and where they're, where they're at mm-hmm. in that journey, what they've learned, how they've grown, how they develop, what they've been exposed to, 
how they interpreted it. And again, I think one thing that you said that was really important is the, the role of community, right? And so the other piece that we've internalized in this colonized reality is this, this overemphasis of the individual, that everything is individually self-defined, right? As, if, as opposed to communally defined. And, then, and at the end of the day, manhood or gender, these are all, these are constructs. These are things that we as human beings decide what it means, right? For us, mm. right? And so that's why we put down markations of what we think are things that demonstrate that we've accomplished certain rites of passage, right? And so in the Jewish tradition, the yeah. bar mitzvah, right? That's an element of the rite of passage, right? And like you said, oftentimes the beginning of a further journey. So, yeah, man. Well, I think that's an important point that you bring up. So here we are about to open up the can of worms, all these lines of demarcation that have been created, right? And we, you, we associate them with colonialism. We can just, we, whatever words you want to call mm-hmm. that, that have, that have devalued culture mm-hmm. and that have put a greater emphasis on individual pursuits, manifest destiny, capitalism, claiming your piece of the world for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, I think right now, I don't know if it's just because I've matured to this point or if I'm just finally starting to see it. I think we're now seeing the implications of having generations of that mindset passed down to where men and men and women my age in their you know 30s, sometimes in their 20s, recognize a vacancy in culture. Mm-hmm. They recognize that that culture that they received from their ancestors just a few generations back that they know nothing about. They're starving for it. Yeah. They're desperately looking for something to connect to. And the absence of that has created a lot of this individual mental, emotional turmoil. So it's ironic, but it's like, come on, what did we do this for? Absolutely. And the thing is that a real source of my academic pursuit, pretty young, I mean, while in college and, and since, was really about trying to understand that for me, because as a person who came from a particular cultural background, from India, from a particular religious and spiritual background, Islamic family and community and tradition, and, and being really instilled those values, right, at the foundation. It was made very clear to me what those things were for me. And just growing up in Ohio and folks saying to me, oh, I really wish I had a culture like you. And I was like, what are you talking about? You do have a culture. I, I see it every day. It's yep. very different from ours. You know, like, and I began to understand that there was this void that was out there and I didn't understand why. And I had to learn, I want to learn more about it. And, and that, the thing is that I don't think we understand how immaculately designed the systems and the structures of this society were built. Mm-hmm. And race was a huge component, the construction of race was a huge component of it in terms of creating a social mechanism of control, immigration and the intersection of race and immigration. So you had to be white to immigrate to the United States before 1963. Mm. And at that time, if you were Irish, if you were Italian, if you were Catholic, if you were Jewish, those were really, although they were considered to be white enough to immigrate legally, Mm -hmm. you weren't treated as white when you were here. And there was a penalty, there was a consequence. So when Irish people stuck together, when Italian people stuck together, they sure as hell weren't going to be able to get that job or get that promotion. There was a phrase, Irish need not apply, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the political class and the business class, the, they knew they couldn't economically benefit by these people coming and sticking together. Mm-hmm. So they created a system that put pressure on them to assimilate. And that to, to get the job, to get the promotion, you were expected to assimilate into this notion of whiteness, mm-hmm. which is really nothing. I mean, Europeans didn't come to the United States thinking of, the, those, of themselves as white. That was not a thing in Europe. That was not a concept. And so they came here and we created this notion, this idea. And this ideal to assimilate to, which is kind of more Anglo, you know, and, and, but there was even neighborhoods created that they were expected to move to and live in if they were going to get the promotion, if they were going to become a manager. And so there was this loss, this cultural loss, this void. And one thing I've said many times is that you go, you've, like you said, you've traveled all over the world. I've never met anybody outside North America that has, that says, I don't have a culture except for here. This is the only place I've ever met people that say that. Right. And as a person who was given such a clear, concrete understanding of what that was for me at the foundation, it, it was very hard for me to understand how someone could not know what that was for themselves. You know, mm-hmm. and I think it makes it very difficult to understand 
how deeply other people hold on to their values and what they believe and what they care about and their sense of identity and place in the world. If you, if you don't know what those things are for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great point because even just myself growing up second generation, you know, from my dad's side of the family and my, you know, it's funny because my, my grandmother, I talk about her all the time. She's a, she's a little Japanese woman, you know, that type you probably would see walking around in Japan. She's 95 years old and she's got a New Jersey accent. And she watches the New York Yankees every time they're on TV. And so it's it's amazing just to see the contrast because I, I talk about it like it's funny, but it's it's real. There's a culture that was that whole that whole assimilation process to the point where we don't identify it as culture because it's not as colorful, it's not as traditional. There aren't as many ceremonies or practices, customs, rituals that go back thousands of years. It's mm-hmm. it's really a new relatively new culture compared to what has existed around the world for millennia. Well, here's the thing is that the assimilation in the United States, I mean, this assimilation to whiteness, and there's a point in which you can never cross into that, but, but the overall cultural assimilation, it's an assimilation to capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that there's this loss of the sacred. And because, I mean, culture is comprised of what's sacred for people, what you hold on dear to, what's important to you. And when you lose that and you, in replacement of engaging in capitalism, right? I mean, I mean capitalism is at odds with, with the sacred of, it commodifies, it turns it into a product. You slap a price tag on a, on a statue of Buddha and now it's a product, not a sacred statue that mm-hmm. is teaching a deep, profound lesson to you. And so, and not to say that it's absolutist, right? But that's how we, you go down that road, right? It's this process of loss. And then generationally, it starts to set in. And then, and then we, we lose our sense of rootedness in that process, right? And yeah. we know if we look at human history, that's not what human beings have traditionally done, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing how quickly the mentality has shifted just by controlling the, the dissemination of information that's being taught in schools, the mm-hmm. systemization of education, the whole the whole thing. And just in, in just a couple of generations, we've completely lost a sense of what, what culture really is and what it's all about. And uh, I, I'm really glad that you brought that perspective into it because it actually helps something lock in a little bit more for me is what I used to assess as a vacancy of culture really was just a an insidious culture that they, I don't mm-hmm. even think they want you to recognize that you're a part of this capitalist system mm-hmm. it's like they they want us they want you to see yourself as separate from it so that you believe you're not worthy of it mm-hmm. and then fall into the worker bee mentality which is well nose to the grindstone got to pay the bills this month forget everything else that's sacred mm-hmm. forget everything else that matters it's all about the almighty dollar and keeping myself on the right side of the tax man yeah when you're insecure when you feel voids when you feel like there's something missing it actually makes you more susceptible to be a consumer, uh, that you're going to try to consume your way to try to fill the void, right? And so that's part of the reason why we have a society that it like beats every distraction from ourselves, you know, no matter what distraction. And then we have the, the, the real like pinnacle of that in places like Las Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you can feed any vice you want that's going to distract you from yourself, right. you know? And so there's a lot of investment and commitment to that. And even just if you learn about the way marketing works in this society and the way in which they really, really want people to feel the material that is going to replace the sense of long for community, for family, for, for meaning, for purpose. And like you said, also the labor that's associated with that. And part of what also happens when you're insecure is that you give up your power, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of what allows you to let someone else capitalize on your labor is the sense of like, I'm not worthy enough to self-determine for myself who I'm going to be on this planet. So you end up, because these structures are built on fear, right? And so it's like, I'm afraid to exert myself as a full whole human being that was put here, that is a vessel, right? That is a spiritual being connected to the universe, connected to the source, connected to Allah, whatever the word is to it. Anything that distracts us from that prevents us from being able to claim our power and our sense of whole beingness in this world. Yeah, yeah. Let's, Let's use that as a pivot point. Uh, mm-hmm. especially to hone this conversation in on masculinity mm-hmm. and, and manhood though the word power is so provocative in, in this mm-hmm. in this dialogue for especially for men because from a young age power is something that is re- that is revered right you know, thinking of superhero mm-hmm. the superhero archetype etc and just seeing you know 
celebrities and athletes that are influential people it is it's a power game it's it's the mm-hmm. the pursuit and the desire the craving for for power i always think of the word uh, authority and the root word author authorship you know to have authority over ourselves to have authorship of our lives and our reality mm-hmm. and i think that's a big consequence of a capitalist culture is that they we basically give that away mm-hmm. we agree to give that right away in exchange mm-hmm. for whatever we're taught and told so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the implications of that, especially for men, especially for men at a time where we're looking to establish a sense of power and authority over ourselves and then not knowing what to do at that point. Yeah. Well, I think there's insecurity that I talked about in that sense of like powerlessness, a lot of dimensions to it. That's part of, I think, why you're seeing some some of the violence that you're seeing play out. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that it's really at the root of what patriarchy is because when you talked about power right the thing is that part of what patriarchy is is this mystification of what power is Uh, from our insecurity we want to use like physical physicality and things that we might have an advantage over but the thing is that part of our insecurity especially if you couple it with being in a capitalist society that we just broke down is that there is a power that women have on this planet that we will never have. Mm -hmm. And there is this attempt to mystify that entire (laughs) reality, right? Mm -hmm. In order to be able to pretend like we're actually the ones that have the power, Mm -hmm. right? And it's this performance of power, right? And it's, and it's oftentimes rooted in an insecurity, right? And the, the consequence of humbling ourselves and acknowledging the fact that there is a deep, profound, sacred power that we do not have. And and that is okay. Hmm. And that, you know, like all human beings, male-identified individuals have egos. And if we're not able to humble ourselves in the face of that power, right, hmm. what do we try to do? We try to control it in order to feel like we are powerful, right? Hmm. And that is at the core and at the source of systems of patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. And if we look at the weapons that we use, we use violence, we use sexual violence, we are predatory to nature, right? One thing that I think has been really profound amongst indigenous people in North America, indigenous women in particular, who have been subject to tremendous rates of rape um, by men and predominantly white men. And in the climate justice movement, indigenous women are making it very clear that there is a direct relationship between the raping of the land and the raping of of indigenous women. And that Mm -hmm. that is not a coincidence, that that is happening at the same time, right? And so the exertion of this power, of this false power that we seek to exert on this planet, on this insecurity that we have, it's literally destroying the planet, right? Uh, Well, it's destroying ourselves, really. It's not destroying Mother Earth. And so I think for a a lot of people believe that we're entering an era of the rise of the divine feminine energy. And so what does that mean for us as men? What it means is that we need to come to a level of humility that that the way we've been operating is not healthy for anybody involved, including ourselves, right? right. Mm-hmm. And so we need to start doing our work. We need to engage one another. We need to learn from one another. We need to grow. We need to support one another to heal from this rupture that we've brought to the earth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love what you're saying there. It makes me think of two things. First thing is interested to hear your definition of what masculine power a healthy integrated masculine power what that might look like and also to ease our way into this conversation of because there's feminism and then Mm -hmm. there's the the stigma that's been placed on all men on all males based on the action of some men in history and historically how we've been with the you know whether you call it patriarchy or just men exerting that false sense of authority, that, that performance of power, as you put it. So I'm interested in what the, what the integrated, healthy version of masculine power looks like, and then also how, this, how sexism, like you said before, is not just a female issue. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most profound things I've learned in my journey was through my opportunities to learn from Native elders in particular, was when I came to understanding what warrior spirit was about is that I think that concept and the misperception of it by our dominant society is a great example of the difference 
between masculinity as it's performed in the society versus what masculinity probably is supposed to be more about. Mm -hmm. And so in our dominant narrative in our society, the warrior is exerting themselves through physical prowess, fighting and war, right? And what I've come to learn was that no, the, it's about, it's a warrior spirit and that the battle is on the spiritual level first, mm. far before you ever encounter someone on a physical level, right? And that that is part of the role of the male. Part of the reason why that war has to happen on the spiritual level is because there's also a humility of what your power and what your relation is to the divine feminine energy, right? Which is that much more powerful and that much more sacred because of its ability to, to transport between worlds, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so the, the deeper we humble ourselves and engage in that spiritual battle, right, with our ego, the more powerful we become in our ability to be, to be spiritually prepared to actually use our physical abilities when, when called upon, right? And so that's not something that I knew or understood at all mm-hmm. <laughs> growing up, it was, yeah. but it was something I feel blessed to have been imparted on. Yeah, and it makes me think of the masters. Uh, I think of martial arts because I have a martial arts background too. Mm-hmm. And the masters of the different martial arts tend to be these tiny old guys who are very quiet. You, know, you walk in a room, and, and you would think that they were just somebody's grandfather if they did, if they weren't if it wasn't made clear that this is our master. Very soft spoken, able to direct that masculine power in such an efficient strategy that they don't need to brandish it when they walk into the room. It's, it's only called upon when it's absolutely necessary. And I, the, the war, the, the warrior mindset, like you said, it makes me think of the, the battle that we have internally is grappling with this, this power that we have, literally this biological power that we're given because we are typically the larger, faster, stronger species or, mm-hmm. or not species, but you know, gender, I guess for not, mm-hmm. not even knowing which term is appropriate these days, mm-hmm. but that's that since that's the tendency of what we have is is being able to command those energies and not let them take over us or override and then being able to direct it when it's actually needed instead of just just because right and so and actually what you just talked about that internal spiritual battle that struggle that we have with the ego that is actually what the higher definition of jihad is in the islamic tradition Hmm. jihad it because, you know, in this society, it's framed as holy war, right? Mm-hmm. Jihad translates in English to struggle. And there's two types. There's a greater jihad, a spiritual struggle, right, that we have with our ego, right? And then there's the lesser jihad, right? The lesser jihad is the physical uh, interpretation, which by all scholars' understanding is simply the right to defend yourself, your family, and your community in the mm-hmm. face of aggression. Right. You are not permitted to give to engage unprovoked violent attacks against others. Right. Mm -hmm. That does not meet the standard of jihad on the physical level. Right. But that's the lesser. Right. And so to me, again, when when I would learn from indigenous elders, it uh, helped me understand, oh, that's why there's that deeper wisdom around jihad in my tradition. And so you start to realize that so many human beings of various traditions around the world have come to these same understandings, Mm -hmm. right? In the face of having to humble themselves in relationship to nature and the universe, right? Mm -hmm. Because people, we, we as human beings have been subject to that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why the the exchange of culture is in my opinion, one of the most important things to happen at this current stage of where we're at in human history where mm-hmm. we're on the we're on the doorsteps of human extinction where we could mm-hmm. we we could be causing these irreversible events to happen and mm-hmm. it to me it, these cultures that have lived on for thousands and thousands of years are the ones that hold the one of the puzzle pieces that that explains why why we're here as as a whole race of people and i've seen i've gotten the pleasure of witnessing elders from different tribes speaking just specifically of indigenous people in the western hemisphere and in the americas but then also those elders sitting at the same table as elders and wisdom keepers from the maori tradition from traditions from overseas and when these folks get together and sit down it's amazing just how much mutual reverence there is for one another's cultures and faiths and also recognition 
of, ah, I see that in your story, in your creation story, the wisdom from your elders and ancestors that reflects something that I learned from my elders and ancestors. We're talking about information that's been passed on for hundreds of generations. Mm -hmm. And when people can recognize and identify that in each other, it's like, ah, there's some confirmation, there's some acknowledgement of how we as a race of people have been able to coexist and cohabitate. And I think I think it's really the the mysteries, quote unquote, that we're looking to unlock because we have this modern culture that doesn't that, that contradicts that entirely. Well, you know, the thing is that in connection to what you're talking about, we I think again, there's ways in which modern civilizations devalues indigenous I and mean, was labeled savage and all this stuff, right? But um, just let's just take the oral tradition in of itself, right? It's framed as not not valid and not valuable lacks the specificity and the and the rigor right of the written tradition right mm-hmm. everything needs to be written to be valid right well it, the thing is that we don't understand the fact that in oral tradition societies there was a deep discipline <laughs> okay there was a level of listening and if someone could said something the uh, another person could say it back word for word exactly as it was said to the other person, right? When you don't have a written tradition, even if you do have a written tradition, but you have a strong oral tradition, right? Think of it that, like it is a, an ability that we have, right? That we don't use because we've now have this crutch. So let, let's just use this metaphor, right? These days, nobody knows each other's phone numbers. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, I knew every single person's phone number. <laughs> yep. Wrong. Every single person I knew, I knew their phone number, but I, I couldn't tell you anybody's. I could, there's very few people I could, whose phone numbers I could tell you right off the bat now because I've lost that, that ability, right? Because I have a crutch, right? And so part of what technology does is that it becomes a crutch, right? And so we start to lose connection with some of our abilities as human beings, right? And then we look back at people who don't do that and we we view that as primitive, right? But as a result, we disconnect ourselves from the vast abilities that we have as human beings, right? And when we start to understand how powerful what human beings have had access to in their abilities, right? We start to realize that, oh, there's a deep intelligence in, involved in that, right? There's And there's wisdom and there's knowledge there that is equally as valuable. I work in higher education primarily. And if you look at the way knowledge is emphasized, it's only the intellectual that matters. Mm-hmm. That's the only type of knowledge that is viewed as valuable, incredible, right? And anything else is viewed as intellectually weak, right? Well, why is that? And it just happens to be a Eurocentric and patriarchal system (laughs) that was built on. So the thing is that like, these are not coincidences, right? When you de-emphasize these other ways of being as a human being, right? And I I think when, when you were describing what you were sharing, the biggest thing that I was thinking about in my experience in relationship to what you're talking about is the reverence for women that exist in the cultures and societies of people that you're talking about amongst the Maori, amongst so many of these indigenous traditions. And I'm not saying everything is perfect and hunky-dory everywhere, but we're also looking at the world right now through the lens of 500 years of patriarchy. We don't really have a true deep understanding of the way folks were living before all this happened, right? And there was a different balance going on in many cultures and traditions of society in our world. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. I, I talk about that a lot. You know, it's, it's, it became a million times more real for me when my daughter was born this year. You know, she's, mm. be, she's six and a half months old now. And just, I've always been closely attuned to women's safety. I think it's, it's just mm-hmm. a way I've always been. And then thinking about bringing a daughter up in this world mm. and mm. in the current state of the world, what I see, you know, we have the president of the United States is on, you know, recordings telling people to grab women by the genitals. Mm -hmm. It's like, Mm -hmm. I can't even, I can't even fathom the type of world that she could be growing into. And I think about the opportunity that we have as men, like you Mm -hmm. said, you know, the the reverence that a lot of other cultures, especially indigenous cultures have for, for women, for females. What is the, what is the opportunity as you see it for this generation of, of men? Well, part of it is that we have to under, always understand that that femininity is part of us too. It's yeah. just a different balance, right? I mean, because the thing is that part of what I notice in this society, and again, like you said, when you experience different ways of being and cultures and traditions in different places in the world, you start to see and understand this is that, and, and for me, just coming from a culture that was from the other side of the planet and that mm-hmm. is from the other side of the planet, 
I came into increasing awakening around this as I began to reflect was that we have a very narrow definition of masculinity and femininity in this society. And these are, this is a culture and society of hyper-masculinity and hyper-femininity and these very narrow constructs. And as a result, anything that steps out of that is outside of that is viewed as not gender and, and heteronormative, right? And then in most other societies, there's actually a lot more room for a, a spectrum of ways of operating in masculinity and femininity. Men hold hands as friends in most cultures and societies in the world. And yes, I know that the consequences of stepping outside of heteronormativity and outside of what people understand to be cisgendered in, in, in the West, you know, the consequences can be more severe in some other places in the world. I'm, I don't want to minimize that. But what I experienced was that a different level of intimacy amongst men in different places in the world than I've experienced here. And what I recall growing up, and because I grew up in an environment where folks were either white or black, and that was like, you know, part of the point, whatever other, moving between that. But what I noticed in both spaces was the way in which they talked about women mm -hmm. in a hyper-sexualized way, right? Mm -hmm. And I had a hard time understanding why I was so uncomfortable with that, right? And, you know, I felt the need to, I felt the pressure to perform, like, well, you know, like when brothers would be like, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, and I'm be like, yeah, I wasn't even allowed to date, right? Yeah. I wasn't, I mean, so like, I mean, I didn't, I had no idea, right? I mean, I had no idea, but I had to pretend like I knew. And I was always uncomfortable with the way they would talk about women and everything through the sexual lens. And when I got to college, it was, even, it was the same. And that was a mo mostly white environment. There was just such an orientation around sexuality and having sex with women and viewing them through that lens, right? Mm -hmm. And it always made me uncomfortable. And I did, I mean, it meant that I had a lot to learn and I had to go through a long, long journey and process and trying to understand what that meant for me. But part of what I started to unpack over time as I reflected on the way I was raised was that that was not the example of masculinity I saw in the community, in the South Asian, in the Indian Muslim community I grew up in, South right. Asian Muslim. Men did not sit around talking about women, mm -hmm. right? Because, uh, you know, we had, you know, so you walk into any community function, the men go, like, there's nothing said. The men go to one side of the house or one, one area. The, it's just all understood. There's nothing explicitly said. Everybody knows. And we can talk about what's problematic or not imperfect about that. But I do not recall watching men sit around talk about women. That's just not what they talked about. And certainly not in a sexual way. That would have been completely shut down. I mean, people would have had a real problem with that. I mean, that would have been complete loss of face if you were to talk about any woman's in a sexual way, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The model of, and I'm not saying that there wasn't sexism involved, there wasn't problems, but the model of masculinity that I witnessed in the community that I grew up in were men talking about providing and taking a pride in their ability to be able to do that. And that they're going to do that. Their pride in being able, and again, it's still within capitalism. There's still sexism to it, but, but their, their pride in being able to garner re and part of it was they're from an immigrant community from a third world country. And they now have access to opportunities and resources they never had before. So right. they're very focused on, I'm getting these things to provide for my family. I'm taking the pride in that. That's what they talked about. Not how women looked, how they did with them sexually. That never, ever heard or saw someone talk like that, you know? Yeah. And it made me realize that's why I was so uncomfortable with when I began to really reflect and unpack that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. It's, it's ironic when you actually take a step back and attempt to be as objective as possible about it. Just looking at that one specific facet of masculine culture where mm -hmm. we've put such a high value on, you know, who, who's the guy who slept with the most women or who's the dude who's, you know, the player, the one who's, who's got game, who can bag any female. And you look at that and you're like, man, that is such a low expression of masculinity. Mm -hmm. It's just, just having, having the ability to seduce a woman into, into sex. It's, it's like, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a part of being a, being, a man and being, you know, in a, in a masculine way. But if that's all, all of your attention is going, it's like, what, what happened to the rest of it? Mm -hmm. What happened to the rest of what you're capable of doing? What happened to the rest of, like you said, being a provider, taking pride in providing for your family and, and maybe also contributing back to your community, mm -hmm. making an impact uh, on your community that will last more than just your time, but maybe for future generations. It's, we never even got to that point because it was all about 
How many how many people have you slept with? Yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, I, like that's all I heard. You know, brothers talking about when growing up, and it was interesting to me as I got older and and had more friends who were women. How many women I met that had no idea that that's what men talk about? Yeah, like, and I was like, oh yeah, no, that's all they talk about. Like, <laughs> I mean, like they, I mean, I mean, some don't, but I mean, like they talk about it a lot, and they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and you know maybe I was breaking the code by selling but like I mean like you know I didn't care I was just I just thought that I just found I always was so uncomfortable with the degree of fixation on that you Mm -hmm. know and and the thing is that what you again I think we sometimes forget why is that that way in the United States right well because I you know when I was in college and remember I wasn't even allowed to date and so even the fact that I was dating in college like a little bit was like I was like oh my god I'm breaking the rules I'm not allowed mm-hmm. to do this mm-hmm. and you know I was dating a sister from Jamaica you know in America is red is black and I remember you know I was talking some white guys in my class they were you know they're talking about women and what they do you know I think they were in fraternities and which really was an environment which I thought those guys talked like that, you know, they asked me, so what's, what's your, what's your situation? You, you know? And I was like, well, I'm seeing somebody right now. She's from Jamaica. Oh, really? And then they started getting into some really messed up, problematic sexual perceptions that they had about black women. Mm-hmm. And so this is something I had no idea about this time. This is my sophomore year of college. I had no idea about this at the time. Right. Because again, like I, so because when you're from an immigrant family, you're not really, you're not tied to the history. You don't have, you don't really understand why things are the way they are here. And so they started asking me, they were like, so what's it like? And I'm like, and and that's the other thing is that they will say, they will ask things to me that they would never ask a black man. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I was I was like, what's it like? What's what like? Like I really had no. I was not sexually active at this point in my my life. So I'm like, what's what like? They're like, what's it like being with a black girl? And I'm like, it's like being with a person. Like I don't understand what you're talking about, right? <laughs> and they're like, well, is it like some kind of like crazy jungle booty sex? And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Like yeah. what? Like and the thing is that what I realized is that when there was this taboo. Right. And first of all, I was just like, why do you think it's okay to ask me that as a brown man? But, you know, but like they, you know, they think it's they think it's okay to ask me stupid stuff about black people. So that's one thing. But but the second thing is that what I realized and this is tied to my black studies academic background that I started to learn over time was that there was this pent up sexual frustration that exists amongst white men in this society because they have always had access to black women. They have always had access in the history of this country to the raping of black women. And that ended up, that ended up going away. Right. And it became this taboo. Right. And what I realized is that there's this, there's this energy. And so what we don't understand is that so many reasons why things today are the way they are is because of the tainted soil right? The tainted roots that are behind the creation of this country, what has been done to indigenous women, what has been done to black women. And as a result, there isn't even a full recognition of a self-awareness of why these things exist within. And this, I'm going to use us in a very general way. I'm not including myself in this, but, but because I'm not a white man, but, but I didn't understand that like, oh, like, okay, like they have these like sexual fantasies about because in because the thing is that I grew up, I went to high school is 40% black, 60% white. And I only saw black men with white, white girls. I never saw the other way around in high school. Right. And, and so I was, I had been operating like, oh, I guess there's just, they, they're not interested in each other. Right. I had no idea that there was all this underlying stuff. And, and, and when I started to talk about black women and friends about it, they're like, oh yeah know we we know there's mm-hmm. and i'm like really they're like oh yeah like it's crazy i'm mm-hmm. like oh okay like yeah. <laughs> you know and and so this is all part of for me as a person from an immigrant background how i started to learn how a lot of this stuff is like you know seeped in the society in all these subconscious ways that are playing out all the time yeah know? yeah well and i think it's 
to to zoom back out for a second because mm-hmm. it's it's really I I think that the best main thing we can do as men is for all of us to take responsibility for for the for our for our place in this you know and I think that which which you're honing in on is a very specific example of an underexpressed masculine that has been a big part of generations of men from all different types mm-hmm. of backgrounds and and some some cultures I think have done a better job of it than others and at this at the same time we've still gotten to where we're at. We still have men of men, you know, we've got, we've got Caucasian males, we've got men of color with mm-hmm. mis, misperceptions of what it means to be mm-hmm. a man and what, what's possible as being well, a the, man. There was also the, what, the way white men view black men, right? And the ways in which they intentionally emasculated black men, right? And narrowed black men and, and viewed their sexuality as a threat, right? to their access to black women, right? What I'm saying is that it impacts all of us, Absolutely. right? And yeah. and so, but we also have to understand that there there are sources for these energies, right? right? And, the, and, and what causes, there's a lot of trauma. There is a lot of trauma. And so, and by everybody, that everybody has experienced here and in the world. I mean, the, I mean, colonialism happened all over the world so, and, and sexism and patriarchy exists in all over the world. But there's a specific type of trauma here on this land amongst the human beings that are on this land. And I think that part of what that means as men is that we need to engage in our own healing, right? Because we're not going to stop doing it until we do, right? And that's, and you know, we talked about it before this call is that, I mean, when we talk about sexism in the society, we talk about it like it's a women's issue. It's a men's issue. It's about, it, it's about what we as men are not doing, the healing that we need to do in men and masculinity spaces so that we are not perpetuating that, that energy and that history and that ongoing violence that we perpetuate. And we see the dearth of that in the actual investment of time, energy, and resources because in this Me Too environment, and again, there needs to be important work for women. There needs to be important support for trans folks. I mean, there's a lot of pain and trauma, but we need to get at what are men doing? Because if we don't get at that, we're never going to get at the source of what's causing the the repercussions for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is great, man. I I remember... Going back to my my social justice roots, studying that while I was in college, as essentially I, I essentially had a minor in social justice, so that it was always a big part of my of my background. And I lived in the multicultural dorms when I was on campus, and I was a big part of that community. And I remember experiencing just a so much emphasis was being placed on the intellectualization of the problem mm. and understanding mm. it. And I was always wondering, well, where's the action at? Where, where, what, what is there? What are we going to do? Where's the solution? Because we're talking all about the problem. And I know that a lot of folks, especially when we're talking about social justice, almost all of the professors and educators are minorities or people mm-hmm. who or, or white folks who empathize with the minority. So it's like, OK, well, we could we could sit around here and, and commiserate about history and the problems. I think it's an important part of the dialogue. But then what do we do about it? So yeah. I'm you know what I call sure. what you experienced in what the social that? justice class? Yeah. I call that the culture of campus social justice elitism. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it's it right like there, man. the intellectualizing of social justice. But that's, of course, the academy is going to do that as a sure. place that only values the intellectual. Right. So therefore, it's disconnected from the very communities that are impacted by yeah. the issues. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's exactly you know, so what then happened. We, then, we, then we come off campus and start talking about microaggressions and you know, all the you know all these all these words this new hierarchy of words that we've created and we and you, what I used to say to my students when I worked at University of Michigan I used to talk you know I knew people in Detroit that were doing really important work in the community and hip hop activists and so forth I said let, let, let's take all your words I know the words too let's go to Detroit let's just see how that's gonna go mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and they know they know right away it's not mm-hmm. gonna go very well. They're going to look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. And these are the communities that you say that you advocate for, right? But the thing is that we internalize this system that's telling us to perform, right? So, oh, we have to do, okay, this is what it, we have to do this in order to be viewed as valid. Okay, we're going to do that, right? And so we don't even realize the ways in which we are internalizing these systems that are telling us to be these ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so then what do you see? Uh, obviously, even in the name of wokeness. 
anyway. mean, we gotta we gotta heal, bro. I mean, we have to have a deeper spiritual element to all. I mean, we're talking about it, but this is not the normal conversation that's going on in social justice spaces no. right now. I will say that there are a lot of people who increasingly are realizing that this anger is not doing anything for us. It's it, it's it's not leading anywhere. It's because what do we do? We tear each other apart. We we take that anger out on the people closest to us, mm-hmm. our family, our friends. I mean. Because we don't want, because those are the easier places to put it, yep. right? And so, so there we have to shift to a deep, deep commitment to healing. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that the intellectualization of the problem on the academic level, it's like trying to beat the system at its own game. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's like okay, yeah, I get it. Your you know your words are strong. Your 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 dissertation has a very compelling point, but you're not going to beat. You're not going to beat those folks at their own game. It's it's yeah. Like we that's gotta, why we Audrey Lord said that you know you can't use the master's tools, you know, against there. you know because because then you become exactly so. exactly man. So I, I I agree with you. I think that the work is in the, is in the work, right? What people are calling the work right now it's it's that spiritual, emotional, internal warrior battle that we that we all go through. And to me, that's that's one of the most masculine things we can do is see where where am I contributing to the problem. Where can I be mm-hmm. a part of the solution by taking care of myself and and then letting my own example be, be let let people witness that and be inspired by that for how they can live their lives in a more integral way. You you know what got me more real about it was because I was so motivated by anti racism early in my career. I was all I was laser like focused on dismantling racism that's the only thing i cared about and what i realized was that i was asking white people to do some things that i wasn't willing to do myself Mm -hmm. and i was like how can i ask other people to do their work if i'm not willing to do the work that i need to do around the stuff that i benefit right and some people say well men of color we're targets and and we experience at the intersection you know a, a, a yeah that's true but but it doesn't mean that we don't benefit from patriarchy because there is a whole lot of things that we as men don't deal with that, sure. that we know that people who are not male identified do, whether you're trans or a woman or yeah. whoever. Yeah, and that's that's what it comes down to is you can be a victim of your situation no matter what. Whatever hand of cards that you're dealt coming into this world, you can you can lean on that. You know, you Look, can find well, a bunch of people who empathize with you, but you can do that for as long as you want. Yeah, you, you know what? I, t- I talk about oppression and privilege like a tailwind and a headwind. So around the areas in which we have privilege, where we benefit, we have access to social power in society. It's like a tailwind. And it, we don't even realize we have it. And it's kind of getting us to where we want to go. And, and when, we're, when we experience oppression, it's like a headwind. And we really notice it. It's making it harder to get up to where we want to go. Right. And it's frustrating. It's like, and it doesn't mean we can't get to where we want to go eventually, but we really notice. And so our tendency is to notice the headwind, mm-hmm. right? But we have a headwind and a tailwind at the same time around mm-hmm. different parts of ourselves, right? If you're a U.S. citizen, you have a tailwind mm-hmm. on this planet, right? There are places and things that you can do that you certainly can if you're, if you're undocumented mm-hmm. and certainly can if you're from certain countries in this world, right? Mm-hmm. But if I'm not willing to look at that at the same time as acknowledging the fact that I may be marginalized around another part of my identity, right? Then how can I ask other people to do their work, <laughs> right? That, yeah. That's, and so when, when I came into a deep understanding of that, that changed everything for me. Hmm. So, so what, since we're coming to a close here, what would you say is that one singular message that you would send out there to guys who, who are in that same position that you were? Uh, we, we gotta, we gotta create spaces to be, re- be able to be real with each other straight up. I appreciated, you know, in your, your first episode or your, an earlier episode, you named, you know, ways in which you felt like you had done things in a way that you didn't want to perpetuate with, with your child. Mm-hmm. And we have to be with, I mean, we have to be willing create spaces where we can be vulnerable with one another, where we can be honest where we can talk about the mistakes we've made, talk about the, you know, the opportunities to learn and to grow and potentially heal. Sometimes we've had our own trauma. Sometimes it's not as simple as just family trauma. Right. You know, so, I mean, many of us have, you know, from the various cultures we come from, you know, we, there was, you know, physicality involved in the way we were raised. Those the things all have effect and impact on us and hurt people, hurt people, you know? And so we're not going to be perfect. We're human beings. We make mistakes. We're never going to be able to fix it all that we've, we've done, but we can 
heal, we can grow, we can try to make right what we can make right, we can hold ourselves accountable where there's opportunities to be held accountable. And then we have to find ways to move forward and build family and community in a loving way where we can continue to, to learn as we continue to make mistakes along the way. Yeah, that's it, man. Yeah. Very simply put, and I've, I've talked about it plenty on this podcast, that that's, that's really what made the difference in my life. That's really what continues to make the difference in my life is having a space where I can be real with other men. And I also have built up trust with men who I know are going to hold me accountable, who are going to mm. let me know when I'm believing my own BS and getting in my own way and lovingly call me back to a place of truth, uh, what's really true for me and what I'm up to in my life. So I, I do, I, I'd love to see that for more more men across the world, regardless of their background, mm-hmm. and, and especially for men of color, for men of from a minority yeah. background, where this, it is less, I don't know if it's been less available or it's just been less talked about. It's just not as big of a topic. Well, you know what I learned recently is that it is common knowledge in Western medicine that because men don't build community the older we get the the less we create community with one another and which is generally not the case as much with women identified individuals women tend to create community with one another as they get older and they directly connect it to longevity in life that in life expectancy right i mean not entirely but it's a huge component of what's considered to be a major factor Um, It's part of why we don't identify even when we do when we are sick and when we have diseases, (laughs) because when we don't have community, we don't we can't bounce things off each other. I'm feeling this or I got this. Oh, you know what? That's I've had something like that before. Women do that with each other all the time. Mm -hmm. They support They support each other. The older they get, the more they do that Um, from from what I've heard from a medical professional. It seems to be common knowledge amongst them. Well, yeah, man. I mean, just navigating an an adult relationship, you know, a a marriage and having children, being a father Mm -hmm. as as a starting point. I don't know how I ever would have made it through those two parts of my life had it not been for having the support of other men to share that with, to go to with the struggles that I had, the things that I needed to process first before I came and approached my wife with them. It's, I, I don't, and I don't know how any guys out there are still doing that. Cause I know there's plenty of them. I know there's plenty of guys that they go to work, they come home and then they, they do their things with their family and they're living in this silent existence of yeah. suffering, really, really struggling where they may not have to, if they had greater support or a greater network. So I, I'm not surprised by that. And you know, of course it's one, one, one more of those things. It's like, let's go fellas. It's, you know how hard mm-hmm. it is to get guys to engage in this conversation to, to step in and be a part of a circle of men. I know because I remember how hard it was for me in the beginning, but it's it's near it, it's way harder to get mm-hmm. men interested in this type of dialogue than it is for women. Yeah, because I mean, the dialogue part's the hardest because I think even when we create community, we don't necessarily talk about real shit. You, <laughs> you know, like yeah, we yeah. might want to play basketball together, uh-huh. but like, you know, are we talking about anything real? You know, we might want to talk about sports, but are we talking about anything real? You know, and I think that's a different level and layer that, again, that requires a level of vulnerability, openness, honesty, Mm -hmm. reflection, self-awareness. And for me, I'm glad I've I've done enough of that work for me to feel like I know that I can openly express love and affection to my son. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I'm thankful that I'm able to do that. I'm not saying I'm perfect and I'm not saying I'm doing everything do everything right i'm just saying that i know that a lot of men have a hard time with that even with you know and and even with their own child yeah you know and i want to be able to do that yeah and i'm thankful that i can yeah well that's that's huge man i'm i really enjoyed this conversation i think that you bring a, a great great perspective to this to this dialogue especially having someone come on here from from the educational world Right, because it is like we said. We said we joked about it a little bit, but it, it can be so intellectualized. Oh, but the yeah. realness of the conversation comes back to the same compass point that we need to be doing more of this, talking about what's real, and and bringing that to the table, leading with that. And that is perhaps the biggest challenge that any any man any any man on his warrior's journey is is going through is being able mm-hmm. to stand with what's real for you and not worry about. What, what you're going to receive on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's to me, that's one of the most courageous things that any man can do. Yeah. You know, one thing I realized recently, I thought about recently is just how much the shit that you cared about, that you thought was such a big freaking deal to you when you were young, when you were a teenager or whatever, that just don't get anymore to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, God, that shit didn't matter. Like, yeah. why did I, why was that such a big deal to me? You know, it's just about letting go, being honest with ourselves, 
moving forward, being true and authentic in ourselves. Yeah, so. that's it, man. Well, before we wrap up, let me ask you just a couple lightning questions, and then you can tell everybody who's listening where to uh, where to check you out at. Okay, you ready for it? Yeah, man. All right, first one. What is one thing you've learned in your life you wish you knew back when you were 18 years old? Oh, that's directly relevant. <laughs> it's exactly what I just said. None of this shit was going to matter to me. There you go. In terms of like just the things that I thought were so important about, I mean, so many, a lot for me, it was a lot of cultural and religious hangups that, you know, just because, you know, and the guilt of, of doing things differently from what exactly what my parents were told and that they were still going to love me <laughs> even when I broke the rules, you know? Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's I wish I did that. <laughs> All right. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Mm, I, I think self-awareness. So many times we're not aware of the way we're affecting other people, just even in our physical presence and what our physical presence can mean for somebody else, you know, and just recognizing that and maybe mm, adjusting. Self-awareness. That's a good one, man. Awesome. Well, last but not least, where can everybody who's listening follow you track you learn more about what you're up to in the world maybe some of the work you put out where, where can we find you yeah well my website is just my name amerfahmed.com no periods or spaces or dashes and then you know i've got all the social media it's all dr amir f ahmed so twitter instagram d-r-a-m-e-r-f-a-h-m-e-d awesome i'll make sure we put that up in the show notes Thanks again for, for being on here, man. It was really good to chat with you. I appreciate the realness, the real fact you bring to it. Obviously, there's still so much more I know you could chat about. We'll have to do a follow-up episode in the future and bring in some of these other stories and elements of activism that you've experienced in your life, man, because you clearly are a well of wisdom, and I appreciate that about you. Oh, for sure, man. Thank you for doing what you're doing, man. It's so important. We need, we need more of this. I'll do everything I can to make sure that folks learn about what you're doing. I appreciate it, brother. Well, you stay warm out there as it starts to cool down out there in Massachusetts. We'll, we'll keep holding it down out here with our sunny Southern California weather. All right, brother. Peace and blessings. This episode took me way, way, way back to my Ithaca College days. Shout out IC Bombers. A little known fact, I was in a scholarship program in college and it had a heavy social justice component. So we studied social justice. I minored in social justice in college and speaking with Amer opened up all of these doors and all these conversations that I used to have for a big chapter of my life. And I really appreciated being in this dialogue with him, especially over a decade removed from being deeply in that space myself and seeing how important and how relevant those conversations still are and how so many people are completely jaded when it comes to this conversation. They completely remove the possibility of connection, of healing, of reform, of, of change simply by bringing their anger to that conversation. And that was one of the biggest takeaways I had from this episode was how can we approach problems with a solution mindset and an approach and a strategy that involves cooperation, working together, working cooperatively, really, really, really working in unison and not just working for our own interest and what we want to see. So I hope you enjoyed this episode too. I know we went in a lot of really deep directions and exposed a lot of really uncomfortable conversations, but hey, that's what it's all about. Being a rising man is being in those uncomfortable conversations. So if part of this made you feel uncomfortable, good. That's what we're here to do. One of the things we're here to do. And if you're looking to get more uncomfortable, make sure you sign up for the Rising Man Fire Circle. Go over to patreon.com slash rising man. Remember, you've got till the end of November to lock in that $33 a month rate. We extended it for a couple more weeks because there was a couple of you guys that expressed real interest in wanting to be in there. So we gave you an early Christmas present, gave you a little extra time, but it will not be extended. Starting December 1st, the price to be in the fire circles goes up. So you can't say I didn't warn you. I'm telling you right now, jump in, make it happen. Move mountains, get yourself in there. Check out the show notes for links and resources over at therisingmanpodcast.com. My man Julian Suba cooking that up for y'all. Shout out to Julian. Big love, brother. You can subscribe and follow us on the podcast app of your choice, wherever you're listening to us, wherever they allow you to hit that subscribe button, push that heart, hit the follow, whatever it is. Make sure you do that. Make sure you do that. It's a good way to support what we're doing here at Rising Man and also so you get the notifications and downloads every single week. So you don't even have to think about the Monday morning meditation. You don't even have to think about the new Thursday interview that's dropping it just pop, pops up right there for you. So make sure you do that and leave us those reviews, comments, ratings, five stars if you believe we deserve it and your most honest feedback of how The Rising Man is landing for you, especially if you've got big takeaways or insights from the episode that you listen to because we read them and we use that feedback to adjust our approach. This is about 
we the rising men not i the rising man and what i think is good (laughs) and what we as a team think is good we need you guys to tell us what you need to hear more of so let us know if you haven't left a comment yet or in a while go over and leave another one it doesn't hurt doesn't hurt to leave too many while you're at it if you don't already follow us on instagram check us out at rising man movement on ig my man rowan tyne has been flexing on the instagrams i'm telling you guys rising man is coming through in 2020 in a big way just wait just wait till you see what we have in store the rest of my power team my man sean offenbach the dude has been holding it down with me the longest when rising man was just an idea sean was the first person on board appreciate you brother thank you for everything that you do and last but not least my man mark rose the head fire chief holding it down inside the fire circles making sure all y'all are taken care of all you guys who are about to sign up for the fire circles be on the lookout for mark rose he's gonna come at you he's gonna get you all set up doing big things brother appreciate you everybody else out there wherever you're at Whatever you're feeling right now, whatever is present for you in this moment, whether it's the highest high, the lowest low, or somewhere in the middle, just remember it's all temporary. This moment is fleeting. It will pass and a new one will come and it will keep moving forward. Just know that wherever you are right now, it won't be like this forever. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.